Another edition of the Behind the You podcast. Got a good one here today, Antrell Roll, who's uh, now got his hand in coaching. So we might tackle that in a little bit. But Antrell, we need something to feel good about. We need some good mojo, bro. So I need to start it off this way. And I just, I was fortunate enough to be there at your Hall of Fame induction into the University of Miami. And you told a great story, a little a little colorful, but it's okay. I want the full story about, I think it was your freshman year, fall camp scrimmage. You had a conversation with your dad. You got to tell the story and I need it all. We need to uplift the people. People here a little bit. You know, long story short, I come into University of Miami as a blue chipper, as a five-star athlete, you know, expected to come in and, and play pretty much immediately. You know, we had some great corners ahead of me. Mike Rump, Phil Buchanan, those guys were amazing. You know, taught me a lot, gave me a lot of insight. Watching them play the game, it actually helped me a lot, you know, that first year. It helped me tremendously. The two freshmen that weren't redshirt was Sean Taylor and myself on the defense side of the ball. On the offense side of the ball, you had Kellen Winslow and Frank Gore. We were the only four freshmen that weren't redshirt. So we had something to prove. We had something to prove being that we were playing special teams. You know, we, we there was no such thing as a slack off on special teams. You know, special teams, we were the dominating force because we set the tempo and we end the tempo. So we had to live up to a, to a pretty high standard, even on the special teams. We were getting in the games. We knew we were getting in the games because nine times out of ten, we were blowing teams out by a pretty good margin. So, you know, I was the second guy in line after Phil and Mike Rump. Come springtime, I'm starting at the left corner. Alfonso's uh, Marshall starting at the right corner. And I kept spreading and reaching. You know, I kept spreading and reaching, kept spreading and reaching. And what I mean by spreading and reaching is playing a cornerback position. You know, you're taught to slide, step, or either kick, step, or give ground and stab, stab. I was spreading my feet and widening my arms and pretty much grabbing the receivers. It was just, you know, I was a creature of habit. You know, you can get away with certain things in high school that you obviously not going to get away with at college. So, you know, it was a great learning experience for myself, but I will admit I was a creature of habit. You know, I was, I was used to getting, getting away with, you know, my size and my strength on the high school level. But on the college level, you know, you can't hold those receivers. Like those, those receivers are, are a lot more shiftier. They're a lot more stronger, faster, et cetera, et cetera. So my coach was trying to instill in me the technique of, Slide your feet, move your feet. Along with moving your feet, you move your arms, you move your hand, you stab in the chest. And I would get it right sometimes, but I, I would still revert back to the habit, spreading the reach. Going into the spring game, I got demoted. Really didn't know how to handle it. I was extremely frustrated, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't show any signs of, how do I say, like, let down within myself because I, I, was, I was extremely frustrated. I was, you know, my mind was rolling in many different directions. You know, I feel like I let myself down along with many others. This is spring after your freshman year? This is spring after my freshman year, correct. Okay, so now Phil and Mike are gone, right? And now it's you all and Alfonso. Correct. Those guys were enjoying their escalades in the parking lot, getting ready to hit for a draft. So long story short, I get demoted, so I'm on second team for the entire spring. It really hit me hard, you know, when we had the spring game at the Orange Bowl because I'm like, damn, I'm on the second team. I was thinking, you know, maybe he'll put me here for a week or so and, you know, let me work my way up. No, he left me there the entire spring. And who's he? Coach Randy Shannon, who was the king of, of mind games and who was also the king of getting the best out of his players. If you couldn't handle him psychologically, you couldn't play with Miami physically. And that was his thing. You know, he was a genius when it came to that. He handled each player differently. He never handled two players the same. Um, you know, he knew his guys. He knew how to talk to his guys. He knew how to relate to his guys. And that's what made him the outstanding defensive coordinator that he was. Um, he knew his guys. And he knew how to tap into them mentally, uh, not only physically, but mentally. So, yeah, he definitely tapped into me mentally. It was a mental struggle. 
it was either go hard or go home. You know, it's either you step in and you handle whatever is being delivered to you and you overcome adversity or you go home. You know, it was a huge challenge for me. I'd never really been put in that situation before. My only objective was to just work. You know, I would work late at night, you know, when no one was watching. I would just work in my dorm room, just kick, sliding my feet, sliding my feet, sliding my feet. But you know, just as well as I know, there's nothing like the real thing. I can practice as much as I want, but until I have that Roscoe Parrish who's in front of me, running a 4-4 and as quick as lightning. Until I have that Andre Johnson in front of me that's running a 4-3 and 6-2, a monster, there's nothing like the real thing. So we go into spring ball. I'm still with the tools. I'm like, oh man, this dude wasn't playing. I'm on second team. There's no way that I'm going into my sophomore season being a second team. Like, this is not me. This is not who I am. This is not a player that I am. I just put my head down, just kept working, kept grinding. The guys in front of me, they weren't doing bad. Kelly Jennings was doing outstanding, who actually took my place. And Alfonso Marshall, you know, he was holding his own. I wouldn't say he was doing outstanding, but he was holding his own. There was no reason for him to give up his job. Like, it's not like one guy just totally outplayed the other. At that point in time, I would probably say Kelly Jennings was outplaying everyone because he was doing exactly what the coach was telling us him to do. He was a technician, had very good hands, very good feet was technical sound. Like, if you beat Kelly, you just honestly had to beat him. Like, you can out-physical Kelly because he was a little smaller, a little on the smaller side, but he did everything the coaches told him to do, which is what they wanted to see at that particular point in time. So we're going into our, our last scrimmage in the spring game. We're going to our last, I'm, I'm sorry, last scrimmage in the summer. This is the summer, and I'm still on second team. And there's about two, three weeks left until our season opener. And Coach Shannon, you know, before he addresses the defense and he says, all right, you know, there's there's no positions that are solidified. You know, no one has starting jobs at this point, which was BS because we knew certain guys had starting jobs. You weren't moving DJ Williams. You weren't moving John Billman. You weren't moving Sean Taylor from safety. Our D-line was our D-line. Like, there was guys that were set. So that message were to the people that needed to hear. And I felt like I was that person. So, you know, I go to my dorm room that night. And I get on the phone with my dad and I, and I call my dad and I say, you know, Coach Shannon said that there are no jobs set in stone. Whoever goes out in the scrimmage and plays the best will have their starting job. And I felt like that message was directed towards me. You know, like he needed me to step my up and be the player that he knew that I could be. And I was up for the challenge. You know, I was up for the challenge. I called my dad and I told him, you know, what Coach Shannon said. And my dad told me, he said, listen, now remind you, my dad is a very subtle guy. You know, don't really say too much one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And my dad got on the phone with me and he said, Antra, listen to me. When you go out there tomorrow, you let them know who you are. You let them know what your last name is. He said, your role. He said, you know what that means? That it means you can never be denied. And he said, I want you to go out there and I want you to play like a wild man. <laughs> That's what I wanted. That's what he told me. I get goosebumps, you know, just talking about it right now because I see it now with the influence that I have on my son. And for my dad being such a quiet guy, you know, a real sort of guy who doesn't say too much, when he says something, and in particular when he said that, it hit me like nothing has ever hit me till this day in my 38 years of living. It hit me. And I'm like, damn, you know, it's, it's just words. But I knew he meant it. I know he felt it. And more importantly, not for him. He felt it for me because he knew that I wanted it. And he knew where I should be. So... When he said that, it was like lightning just went through my body. You know, that, that night, I just envisioned making plays in the scrimmage, just making plays, making plays, and just being that dominant guy. 
So the next day comes, I can't tell you that I was the most disciplined guy, but I can tell y'all the most fiery guy. I went out there and I did just that. I played like a fucking wild man. Interception, interception return, tackling reverses in the backfield, blitzing, hitting the quarterback in the back. I, I was I was honestly a one-man record crew in that scrimmage. It was because I wanted it. Like, I wasn't starting the season with somebody else in my spot. It wasn't going to happen. You know, I, I don't know how I would have responded to that. You know, as far as the embarrassment, as far as me knowing and being the player that I know that I'm capable of being. But it was also a great learning and teaching experience for myself because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how high you're ranked or recruited. For coaches, if you can't do what I'm asking you to do, then you won't play. It's as simple as that. And I had to find that out the hard way. And I'm glad that I did because it forever instilled a certain type of work ethic and grind in me that I never, ever shot away from. That moment prepared me for later in life, another similar circumstance that I would have to face, you know, when I was with the Arizona Cardinals. So being that I was already battle tested with Coach Shannon in that situation, it allowed me to prevail and come out on top in another situation that I later had to face with Arizona Cardinals with another head coach. So, you know, it's words, it's words, you know, go out there and play like, wow, man, it's, it's words, right? But for me, it wasn't words. For me, it was my livelihood. It was my everything. It was for my unborn children. It was for just me and being the player that I am and that I've always been since the age of six. I need to go out there and display it. And not only just for that day and not only just for the scrimmage, but throughout my entire career. And that's what I did. It woke me up for 14, 15, 16 years to come, you know? And, and, I, and I, until this day, I still have that mentality. Till this day, I instilled that in my son, who is six years old and ranked number one in the world in jujitsu. He's ranked number one in his world, in his division, and in his year class, he is ranked number one in the world. He's a 2021 Pants champion in jujitsu and was only, at that point in time, was only doing jujitsu for seven to eight months. He understands hard work. Is he going to get everything right? No, but I see him trying to get it right. And that's always a great step. That's always a first step. You know, even right now with my son playing with the 6U with Kendall Boys Club, I tell him, you're the corner. No one can get outside of you. You have to stay outside. When a blocker comes, you stab him and you take two steps outside. Never let anything get outside of you. So yesterday when I'm watching the film, I see the little man trying. He's trying. You know, they got outside of him one time out of seven plays. They got outside of him. But those other six, he forced them back inside. He either made the tackle or his teammates made the tackle. But I see him trying to do it. He's trying to do it. And for me, that means everything because now I know it's registering and I know that he's listening. And if a six-year-old can do it, anybody can do it. And Trell, had the pleasure of talking to a bunch of you guys on this podcast, and everyone talks about the great talent, and I get it, right? A bunch of you guys went to the league. But the one thing that's always stuck out to me, and, and you just talked about it, is the amount of pride that was in that locker room. The belief in yourself and the pride you have in your work, or your name, or like you said, not wanting to embarrass yourself. How important are those characteristics? It's everything. When you put on those pads, you're representing the last name on the back of those jerseys. You're representing the university. You're representing yourself, but more than anything at all, anything, you represent the guys next to you. Now, that's what you really go out there and you play for. Play for those guys next to you. When I'm able to look to my left and look to my right, and I'm able to see Vince Wolford down low, I know what he's going to give me. I'm, I'm looking to my right on the inside, and I see John Vilma, DJ Williams. 
I know what they're going to get me. When I look to the back of me, I have no worries at all because I got Sean Taylor back there. I know what he's going to give me. So it wasn't a matter of what I'm going to get or how hard are these guys going to play because I knew they were going to give me 200% each and every down. If someone beat us, they honestly had to do just that. They had to beat us. Nothing was given. And it was a pride level. Like, it was pride from Tuesday morning when you're waking up and you're going to work out. It was then. The bar was set then. We didn't wait till we hit the practice field to set the bar. Oh, the bar was setting everything that we did. If you came into our weight room when we had Coach Andrew Swayze, probably one of the most underrated coaches that I've ever been around because his label is a strength coach. No, he did a lot more than that. He was our psychologist. <laughs> that mental was real. And he brought it there. He took it there. And we just had a certain presence when we would go in and see this guy, Coach Swayze, doing the same workouts that we're doing. He's just doing them two weeks in advance. And why is he doing it two weeks in advance? Because he wants to see and know what's more than enough, what's enough, when they're going to feel that burn in their eyes from running, when they're going to feel that fatigue in their chest from the bench press. He did everything ahead of time so he would know how we were going to feel and when we were going to feel it. You can't say that about too many strength coaches. It was instilled then. We worked like dogs. We trained like dogs. We competed like dogs. I remember Sean telling myself we were trying to go and do power clean and break records. We didn't go to class that day. Why? Because we were in every weight room session trying to get a certain record. And we weren't going to leave until we got that record. It was just competition. It was just a mindset. This guy's not going to be better than me. He's not going to make more plays than me. That's my brother. I love him death, and I'll do anything for him. But he's not going to beat me. He's not going to make more plays. Who can get to the ball first? That was our competition. Our competition wasn't on the other side. Our competition was within ourselves. Do you talk to each other? Do you talk to the guy beside you? Do you know what he wants? Do you know what fuels him? What was it? Family. A lot of those guys didn't come from the best of the best situations. They wanted out. It was something for us to see as, as freshmen coming home after the Rose Bowl game and going to the Hex Center and seeing 10 brand new Escalades with 24-inch rims. You had the Escalade trucks. You had ESB. You had all type of Escalades from the guys that were being drafted. That was a sight to see because now it put things into perspective. We're not that far away, guys. The same guys that we're out here grinding with, we're playing with every single day, they're right here now. They're living their lives. First round pick, second round pick, first round pick, first round pick. That was something for us to admire. That was something for us to go for. But it wasn't just about that. It wasn't just about the money and being drafted. It was about the dog. That was the biggest thing. It was the dog. It was the dog attitude with a dog mentality. And we weren't going to give up shit. Like, that was just our mentality. If you score a touchdown on us, we were mad. We were ferocious. It was a level of pride. It was honestly a level of pride. Like, we felt like we couldn't be beat. That was my mentality. Like, no, this team can't beat us. So when you walked in, you walked into a room with a ton of people, or walked into a defense with a ton of people, who was the person that was set in the way? That you knew, oh, no, this is only what's acceptable. For the offense side of the ball, I would have to say Ken Dorsey. To be honest with you, I, I, I've never really seen anything quite like it or been in a situation like that. So I did some research. This is what you said once. He led a whole team of brothers. How'd he do it? He earned it. That's the only way he could have done it. Didn't matter if he was a quarterback. Didn't matter if he was a wide receiver. He was the general. If he said 
6 30 6 o'clock 5 30 5 o'clock 4 o'clock we're here and we're running drills he might have had to only tell one person but it snowballed to everyone trust me there was no one missing why because the general said this is what we're going to do and Ed Reed, Clinton Porters, Andre Johnson, John Gilmore, he came to us. Look, fellas, this is what we're going to do. No questions being asked. Have you asked here. And let you not show up. What happened if you didn't show up? You weren't playing. And I'm not talking about during the season. I'm talking about the summer. You weren't playing. Those guys held grudges. You didn't forget. I remember Ed Reed telling Sean and myself, you guys are going to get in the game because we're going to blow their ass out. And when you get in the game, if they score one motherfucking point, you won't play again the rest of the season. And Sean and I looked at each other like, he's dead serious. So if you go back and you do more research and you go and you look at when we got into the game, the second team, more than likely we played better than the first team. We weren't giving up <laughs> because we wanted to play. And that was just, that was standard for us. It wasn't nothing out of the ordinary. It was standard. Our practices, the coaches will honestly have to literally hold us back because it was a brutal. It, it was a bloodbath of practice. That's what it was. It was a bloodbath. Let's just put it that way. Our practice made Saturdays extremely easy because you were going against the best of the best in practice, and we were honestly trying to kill one another. The battle between Kellen Winslow and myself, the battle between Sean and Frank, like I say, we love them to death. But when they're on the other side of the ball, we don't know you, period. We don't know you. We'll hug and kiss after practice. Doing that whistle, and those white lines, going for blood. Because that was the only way that we got those guys better. I had never seen anything like Kellen Winslow. I run it back till this day. I had never seen anything like a healthy Frank Gore. Till this day. The only guy in my life that I could never tackle. I couldn't tackle him. John couldn't tackle him. He was a different beast. He was just a different animal. And that's why, you know, when people, they praise Frank and they see all, you know, the great things that he's done and the accolades and such a doable career. And I'm like, y'all just don't know. <laughs> you all just don't know what this guy is and what he could have been had he not got hurt. I hadn't seen anything like it ever in my life, ever. He was a different dude. But that was our standards. Frank would come out there, no gloves, no socks, ashy and straight up. Ball. That's who he was. But we had guys on that team that honestly, some of those guys you probably wouldn't even let into your house. Like who? Who's not coming to my house? Some of those guys, I'm not going to say no to any names, but some of those guys you honestly probably wouldn't even let into your house. But because they had football and because they had that brotherhood, they were kept on a real, real tight leash. And they weren't going to do anything, anything to jeopardize that. That was a brotherhood. And we held each other accountable. We held each other down. See that jersey, that jersey back there? You can't see it, but that jersey got a lot of blood on it. A lot of sweat. A lot of grind. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my lifetime. The hardest time ever in 32 years of playing football. But I did that. You know, it, it made me the player that I was. I hold, I hold that jersey to a different standard. So you, we talked about Ken. Everyone knows Ed was special. You were in the room with him, though. You were in his position group. And I'm not talking special on the field. I'm talking about the stuff you just talked about, right? That his voice resonated and his voice mattered. Why was he able to lead a team? I honestly think that when Ed would say what he says, it wasn't for notoriety. It wasn't because he was the big man on campus. It was because it came from the heart. And when he talked, 
his emotion, his voice, his facial expression, and you could feel it. Like you, you can, you can honestly feel it going through your body. And he was an ultimate true leader. It didn't matter how good he was or where he was ranked or his profile. He was always there. He never missed anything. He was always a leader, and it showed on the field on Saturdays. When you get those things and you put them all into transition, not only does it make you a great leader, but it makes you a great person, makes you a great player. It makes you someone who's accountable, someone you can look up to. And he honestly taught me a lot about leadership, taught me a whole lot about leadership because he wore it on his sleeve. He expected perfection, which is a hard thing to get. But there were times that we were perfect because that's what was expected in practice. So therefore, on Saturdays, it was easy. It was a no-brainer. The coaching staff, when I think about those guys, man, Coach Curtis Johnson, Randy Shannon, Art Kehoe, Coach Mark, and the baddest motherfucker of them all, Coach Solinger. We had dogs that were coaches. They were absolute dogs, and they had a dog mentality. So you couldn't play with them with that soft shit. It wasn't going to happen. That soft wasn't going to happen. There was no such thing. Coach Johnson, Coach CJ stayed on me all the time. What was he? Wait, he wasn't your position coach. Or he stayed on you for what? Hey, bro. Say, bro. <laughs> Say, bro. You better move your damn feet, man. You better move your feet because you don't move the feet. You see him? He's going to run past it. And then you know what you're going to do? You're going to be over there sitting on the sideline. And you know what? School ain't free, bro. You ain't eating for free. We ain't giving you shit for free. You better earn it, bro. Because I see your daddy at practice. Your daddy going to be mad over there watching you. And then you got to go tell him, you know what, daddy? I'm not moving my feet. That's your problem, bro. He stayed on me every day. Wasn't even my position coach. Stayed on me every day. And I couldn't stand his ass. I couldn't stand him. But I loved him to death. Because he never, ever let me slack off. I think the only time he's really stopped talking and it became more of a friendship was probably the last three, four games of my senior season <laughs> because he knew I was already there at that point. You know, then it became, let me leave him alone a little bit. I'm happy for you. Good job. But then at the end, you must have been, there must have been, like we talk about pride when he, when kind of like the respect right inside of you, you must have felt a special way. Man, CJ's, I earned his respect. Nothing felt better because we had some, some truly dominant receivers and fast receivers to come through the University of Miami during my time. And to hold your own each and every time. And when I, when I, I mean, not a day went by where this guy wasn't in my ear. Not a day went by. You had to appreciate it because he was just being who he is. It honestly made me better. Like, it made me so much better. He made me work on my hands. He made me work on sliding my feet and not just relying on my strength. Like, he made me I think so much better point. Like, it's, it's not even funny. So I want to make sure I got this right. You grew up a Florida fan? Or you grew up, or I don't know if you grew up a Florida fan, but your initial, if I have this right from you, what you said previously, you were a Florida lean? I was a Florida lean. I didn't grow up a Florida fan. I didn't really grow up any fan. I really wasn't a fan of watching football. I knew, you know, I would watch certain games and, you know, things of that nature. But I really, really tuned into football when I would watch, like, Santana Moss play. You know, he was, he was my, my favorite, my favorite at University of Miami. I assume that's why the, the six, that is a reason why. That, that, is, that is one of the biggest reasons why. That, along with my brother, when my brother played football, he also wore the number six when he was in high school. So, you know, I just wanted to, to go out there and be great and, 
being that he was such a great player at the University of Miami, I just wanted to, you know, keep the legacy rolling. And with me wearing a number six, I knew I had big shoes to fill. He was just a, a dominant player. Like every time I saw him, and uh, you know, he wasn't the biggest guy, but I would always see him dominate. And he had a certain type of swagger and attitude about him. Like when you saw him, it just looked like he was always mad. But it wasn't necessarily he's mad. You know, he just had a chip on his shoulder. You know, he wasn't a guy that went into University of Miami on a football scholarship. No, he was on this. He was on this podcast. He's one of the guys that I talked about before. There was a belief. People are saying I'm not good enough. I don't buy it. And I'm going to work my butt off to show everybody that they're wrong. Absolutely. And he was that guy. Like when you saw Santana, when you saw a punt return, you just like, it was like poetry in motion. You know, just from his running form to his speed to his vision, he was just a guy that just got it done, you know, on special teams as well as at receiver, you know, give him reverse. Didn't matter what it was, dudes, he was special, man. And he was my favorite player to ever watch at the University of Miami, no doubt about it. Santana Moss, Sean Taylor, and Frank Gore's freshman year, my favorite players to watch, without a doubt. So did Frank Gore and Sean, did you you came in with Sean, right? I came in with Sean and Frank. Being a Day County star that you were, and they were, did you know those guys before Miami? Yeah, well, Sean, Sean and myself, we we started playing together actually at the at the Homestead Hurricanes at the age of six. His father was police chief, my father was police chief. So we we'd known each other since we were six years old, since we were kids. And Frank, I remember playing against Frank when we were kids also. You know, Frank played for the Grove and, and I played for Florida City and I played running back, he played running back, so we would go at it. We would go head to head. So I remember Frank and just watching him, uh, you know, just go up all the way up through high school. I mean, he was he was the best thing that they kind of ever seen. You know, just just huge fan of those guys even before we ever made that transition to the University of Miami. All right, so we know Sean is held at, at a, you know, he is revered. You were in his room. You grew up with him. You played with him. You said you'd never seen anything like Frank. I imagine no one's seen anybody like him. Without a doubt. Listen, Sean was a guy, and it didn't happen by accident. Granted, he was a freak of nature. You know, guy with 4-4 speed, bigger than any defense end, can run. And when he hits you, he just he took the soul out of your body. But he was also a very, very cerebral player, which, is, which I don't think he gets enough credit for. Sean was a very, very smart player. You know, of course he had you know, all the attributes to help him out. You know, he was rangy, long, could turn direction like a corner, hit you like a linebacker. You know, he was that, you ever seen that movie? What is it called? Like, uh, I think it was, it was with a dog and it was called uh, Man's Best Friend. You know, when they took the cheetah, they took all these different animals and, you know, they, they, they made uh, the specimen, the dog, and he just had all those attributes and all those assets. Well, that was Sean. Sean was that guy. He could cover like a corner. He'll hit you like a linebacker. You know, he was just that guy who was super rangy. I don't think football has ever seen anything like Sean. You may have bits and pieces. You may have guys that may do some things better. You may have some guys that do some things worse. But I don't think you have a guy that did everything as a whole. He was a different beast. And, you know, God rest his soul. You know, he left the, he left the world extremely early, not only as a football player, but, you know, as a father, as a, as a son, as a brother. And... What he would have done and what he would have accomplished, even on the next level, on the, on the NFL level, I don't think it would, it would have ever been touched. I think he was just that special of, of a beast. So you were on the field with him in 2003 in Tallahassee. You've seen a better game than that by a defensive player? <laughs> the guy's special, man. He, 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 he's, he's special. Uh, you, you, you sit back, you know, I sit back sometimes and I just, and I sit here and I think, you know, I just think to myself, like, it, it doesn't feel like he's gone. It feels like, like 
he's on like a long vacation, you know, or he just feels like a, like a distant relative that you just never ever see, but you know, they're okay. And that's what I tell myself, you know, from time to time, just, you know, I've lost many relatives. I lost friends, but nothing hit me quite as hard as, as that one. And Sean and I wasn't best of friends off the field. You know, we were so in sync on the field. We were, we were inseparable. I think we're the best corner safety duo to ever come to the University of Miami. That's just my opinion. But we were so in sync. But we were also completely opposites. Off the field, we were opposites. We were just opposite. We, we were two totally different people. But on the field, you would have never, ever guessed that. You would have never imagined that because we were so in sync. And I think that's what makes a players, you know the person who's beside you. You got to know the person. I knew nine times out of ten, unless they threw the ball and the ball was in short range from my chest down, I wasn't going to intercept the ball because if the ball went anywhere close where I had to jump or go over my head, it was going to be somebody over me grabbed the ball. And that somebody was probably 26. You know what I mean? Like, you got to know your players. Sean knew that it was certain times in the game that he didn't even have to look to my side because he knew I was going to take care of that receiver. He can cheat and do whatever it is he wanted to go be a ball hawk because that's what he did best. You know, to get back to the Florida thing real quick, Antrell. So you were kind of leaning that way. So I guess why, and then what swung it? The, what swung it back home? I was leaning that way uh, for the mere fact that I was blown away by the visit. They did their thing on the visit. You know, they made a real, real good impression. And I didn't know whether I just wanted to stay at home in my backyard or just experience, you know, a little distance, just being on your own. You know, just growing up a little bit. I really didn't know, but I was leaning towards Florida. You said Spurrier. Spurrier was special? Spurrier. Spurrier was a good dude. You know, I, I didn't listen, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't a football fan, so I didn't really know too much about the guy. But, you know, my mom was a football fan. My dad was a football fan. Everyone was a fan of Spurrier. You know, it made a really, really good impression. But the one mistake that Florida made is they let me get back on the plane and come back down to Miami. And in the time that I did come back down to Miami, living within my home and homestead, I went to University of Miami on an unofficial visit and went to one practice. And what I saw at that practice was enough for me to say to hell with Florida. This is where I belong. I never seen a, a practice with that intensity and that much fire in my life. I never seen two guys honestly try to take each other's head off like that in my life. All to say, once that whistle blew at the end of practice, it was almost like a, like a transformation. They became brothers, giving each other water, dapping each other up, hugging each other on the sideline laughing, joking, playing. And me, you know, as an 18-year-old kid, I'm like, what's going on here? Like, he was just trying to kill him. But they were brothers. They knew the levels that they had to push each other to in order to achieve greatness. They were on a plan. They were on a mission. And it showed. It showed in practice. They were on a mission. That swings you, right? Like that passion, the hunger, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, that swings you. And we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. So when you walk into that room as a friend, you're finally committed and you walk into a room with Reed and Rump, Buchanan, Jamal Lewis, Marquise Fitzgerald, you come in with Sean Taylor, Kenny Jennings. When you walk into that room, are you, do you feel like you belong? Like, is there ever any doubt? You know what I mean? Because that's a big, I mean, that's a big room with a lot of dudes. And I know you believe in yourself. So you walk into that room and you feel what? Well, b before I walked into that room, I had the experience of training with those guys, you know, for a couple of weeks in the summer before I was, quote unquote, uh, an actual University of Miami student. And I remember going to the first workout in the summer. And I remember doing the drills and just going through everything. And I'm so tired. I'm so fatigued. I'm so drained. I'm dead. And I just 
we didn't have water. So one finally one of the trainer comes out, she comes out with like maybe six water bottles. And I just grabbed, I remember grabbing like two of the water bottles. And I just took the cap off the bottles. I thought we're, I thought we we're gonna die. And I just remember Ron Burr saying, You little mother, what are you doing? I didn't know that was all the water that it was gonna get for that day, for that time period. I didn't know. I'm just trying to survive. And, you know, it was, just, it was just one of those things, man, where I felt like I was in pretty good shape. I felt like I was a pretty good athlete. But that day, I felt like I was worthless. I felt like I didn't belong. I remember driving home. Well, first and foremost, when we were done, I laid outside in a blazing hot sun for maybe 30 minutes, just pass out, 30 minutes. Then I go get out, and I go lay in the locker room, but on the floor. They don't let me sit on the couch, nothing. I'm on the floor for another 30 minutes. So finally, I, you know, I get the courage to want to drive home. And I just remember driving home. You know, I'm going, I'm heading on the 836 South, and I just hear, and I open my eyes, and I'm like this far away from a pole. I had fallen asleep. Like, I was just, I was, I was done. And I remember going home and telling my mom, I don't know, man, I, I don't think college is for me. I remember going home and telling her that. Like, I just don't, I don't think it's for me. And it took me two weeks to go back. After that, it hurt me. It hurt me so bad to my soul that it took me two weeks to go back. I just, I just felt like, damn, if I feel this again, I, I don't know. I can't feel this way again. But I went back, and it hit me again the same way. Then I went back again, and it hit me again the same way. And it just got a little bit easier every single time I went. And I was like, okay, damn, I can do this. I belong. Just got to keep working. I just got to keep working. Got to keep working. And, you know, eventually when I lined up across those guys, it wasn't like my first time being around those guys when I walked into the room with them because they had been seeing me working out with them. So it was it was a familiar face. It was a little sense of, all right, man, you know, he, he good. He all right. Still had a lot of stripes to earn. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't all right, all right. I was just all right. Just a little bit all right. But that was better, that was better than nothing. They opened the door and let you in. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> now you got to figure out how to stay. Now you got to figure out how to stay, which is the hard part. Do you get more, because you said hurts, losing hurts. More joy from 2001 or more pain from 2002? More pain from 2002. Hands down. 2001, I was a part of it, but it wasn't mine. 2002 was mine to grab. It would have been a different feeling. Winning 2001 was a good feeling. Yeah, it was great. You can say you're a national champion, but it wasn't mine. Like, I was on special teams. I got in the game, you know, periodically. It wasn't mine. It was Ed's, you know. It was Bilma's. It was Mike's. It was Phil's. That was theirs. It wasn't ours. I'm pretty sure if Sean was alive, he would tell you the same thing. It wasn't ours. 2002 was ours. And to honestly be cheated, like, I'm not a guy. I'm a, you know, people ask me all the time about the Super Bowl when we played uh, in Tampa against Pittsburgh. Man, San Antonio didn't get his feet down. He didn't get his feet down, whatever, whatever, et cetera. And my, and my response to that is, I don't care. That was one hell of a damn catch. And if I got to lose a game, I need to lose it like that. I can take that. 100 out of 100 times, I can take that. Because they fought just as hard as we fought, and they earned that win. The one in Ohio against Ohio State, I'll never accept that. Because that was a loss. We should have won that game. Should have won a game. You know? And you line up and you play again. Yeah, you line up and you play again, and then we lose. But the game should have already been won. The game should have been won. And, and that's, a, that's a very, very hard pill to swallow. To be honest, which is not even something that I think about. Like it never, like when I tell you on my own, it never crosses my mind. Never. Because you can't, 
it, it, it's almost as if it never happened. It's just like a like like it's erased from my memory. Yeah, on my own, like without me seeing it on TV or someone mentioning it or bringing it up, I never. I can honestly say, I never ever think about that. I don't think about it. Because you can't let yourself? Meaning, I'm, I'm from the standpoint of, like, it irritates you. It, it, irritates, it irritates the dog shit out of me. Hey, I didn't play in it, and it irritates me. You know, because it was mine. You know, that, that was mine. I'm supposed to be sitting here right now with two nuggets, you know, from, from college. And, you know, we, we, done, we didn't. Could you even put in the words what that locker room was like afterwards? I can't even imagine. The locker room was dead for many reasons. It was dead Wes McGahee, our workhorse has the, 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 the crucial injury. That alone just felt like it took the life out of us. Not because we didn't have our star guy on the field. It was because we knew what was at stake for him. And we knew what he had worked so hard for to get to that point. So it was already hard to bounce back from that mentally and just go out there and, you know, and continue playing the game. But it was, yeah, it's, I don't know. You know, it's just, it's just one of those things where I've never really experienced. We're on the field celebrating. Like, I'm the closest thing to that play, and I'm watching the play. I didn't have to see a replay to realize what happened. I'm watching the play, like, literally in slow motion. And, like, this dude clearly dropped. He just dropped the ball. He dropped it. The defender had nothing to do with that. Did he touch him? He touched him after the ball left his hands. He dropped the ball. Like, you can't miss a call like that in such a pivotal moment. And then... We're already on the field celebrating, and then you throw a flag. No, I can't. I can't. I can't buy that. Have you spoken, seen Glenn Sharp in the twenty years? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've spoken to him. I've, I've talked to him. No, obviously, there's no blame the pass. It's just a bad spot. hundred uh, percent. It was horrible. Hundred percent. Last thing, you um, you had a chance to leave early, and you didn't. You gave a good explanation why. I'd like to hear it. For I'd like this audience to hear it. You know, I had an opportunity to leave early. I sent in my, my, my draft reports, and the report I got back was I would be anywhere from a late first-round pick to mid-second-round pick. For one, my education was extremely important. You know, I wanted to graduate. Like, since I was a kid, that was something that was instilled in me, you know, education before athletics, education before athletics. Now, don't get me wrong. My mom never said education before millions of dollars. I'll keep it 100. She never said that. But... It was still the most important thing. You know, it was still it was still very important. But that draft scout report to me, while some people might look and say, damn, you know, first round to mid-second, that still means dollars. That's still, you know, that's still some great clout. Not for me. I needed to be the head hunter. Like, I knew that if I gave myself another year, I would be the top corner coming out because I knew how hard I was going to work. I knew my work ethic. I knew what I had to do to put myself in such a great position you know, be drafted as the number one or two corner coming out. And I was going to bet on myself. And and the crazy thing about it, which is so weird because, you know, you're asking me this question, I never even really thought about it. There was never any hesitation. There was never any second guessing. It's weird. It's funny that you asked me that now that I think, I'm like, damn, like, I never even hesitated. There's never even a, a second thought. Like, I never even like, damn, you know, should I do? No, once I got the, the scout report, I was like, no, it's not good enough. Going back to school wasn't good enough. I didn't work to be a late first round to mid-second. That's, that's not what I went to university to do. I went to university to do exactly what I did, was be the highest corner ever drafted out of University of Miami, to be the best that I could be. And I, felt like I, and I felt like I did do that. I felt like I was the best that I could possibly be at the University of Miami. I don't think there's anything else I could have given them. I don't think there's anything else I could have done because I gave them my absolute all. 
you know, I, I left it all out there. Like, I, I honestly, I emptied the tank. That's what I call empty the tank. I emptied my tank in the of life. All right, so you talk about dapping people up, respect. I'm gonna, we're going to end this with something that's going to make you smile. You never lost to Florida or Florida State. Undefeated, baby. Undefeated. <laughs> Undefeated. All right, Antrell, appreciate it. I told you, sometimes, I know we were on a time limit, but sometimes you get going. I can't stop people. No, that's all good. That's all good. I enjoy myself, man. Thank you. I appreciate it.